Well, over the past year, year and a half, as I've been preaching periodically, I have been uh, going through, in my mind, it's been a series on the amazing stories of some of the little-known characters that we find in the Bible. And today I'm going to continue that. Today is also going to be an amazing story, but this one is about you and the role that you play in discipleship. Now, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I shared with you the importance that we place on the last words that somebody speaks before they die. And today I'm going to continue that a little bit because we hang on to the words of those who are closest to us. And sometimes we pass on the final words of great leaders for the next generation. It's as if we're waiting for that dying person to sum everything up in their life into just two final phrases or something like that uh, that's going to sum up their life's work or what was most important to them. Some last words become famous, and most of us recognize them. And so uh, just what you were all hoping for this morning, we're going to have a pop quiz. All right? So pencils down, pay attention. I expect to hear some answers for this, okay? So here's the first one. I want you to listen to this and tell me who said these last words. Here's to my love, O true apothecary. Thy drugs are quick. Thus with a kiss I die. All right, who said that? I know I just said it, but I mean, who said it originally? That's right, Romeo. A couple of you knew that. The rest of you were sleeping in your high school English class. All right, here's another one. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Who said that? Oh my goodness, you guys were in remedial English, weren't you? That was Richard III, another Shakespeare play. Okay, let's try something different. Uh, you can relax now. These last words that I'm going to share with you now would be, might be qualified as obvious, okay? This one is from Luther Burbank, who lived in uh, about 1850 to 1925 approximately. He was a renowned botanist, and these were his last words that I'm saying are obvious. He said, I don't feel good. This one is even more obvious. Leonard Euler, a Swiss mathematician in the 1700s, said, I die. And he did. Some famous last words we might say are ironic. Actress Douglas Fairbanks Sr., right before he died, said, never felt better. Some last words are a little bit quirky. Pancho Villa, who was a general in the Mexican Revolution, couldn't think of anything to say, so his last words were, don't let it in like this. Tell them I said something. <laughs> and some last words are humorous. James Rogers, he was about to face a firing squad, and he was asked if he had a last request. Why, yes, a bulletproof vest. <laughs> this is one of my all-time favorites. General John Sedgwick, he said while on the battlefield, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. <laughs> it would have been better if he was an elephant, right? <laughs> well, one of the last and most important things that Jesus said on this earth is what you read this morning, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We often call this the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These words are so important to Christ's followers, and not just because of when they were said, but more importantly, because of who said them. We read these words, we even memorize them, and we tend to focus our thoughts on the evangelism part of the Great Commission, sharing the good news, seeing people become Christians. But if you read Jesus' words closely, he didn't say anything about making converts, but he did say the words, make disciples. Before you dismiss my comments as mere semantics, please continue to listen. I recently read an article that makes the difference between conversion and discipleship very clear. It said the most interesting thing about the Great Commission is that it does not command us to make converts to Christianity. Instead, we are to make disciples of Jesus. And then he went on to say that the difference between convert-making and disciple-making is crucial. Converts change their religion. Disciples change their master. Converts follow a system. Disciples follow a person. Converts, uh, they build a religion. Disciples build the kingdom of God. Converts embrace rituals. Disciples embrace a way of life. Converts love the command to baptize them that's found in the Great Commission in verse 19, but then they miss the command that's given in verse 20. Disciples do baptize others, but only in the context of teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Converts love conversion, and disciples love transformation. Although I'm not sure who the original author was, I really like the clarity that it brings to this big and sometimes vague word, discipleship. What's clear about God's command in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is that conversions aren't listed as part of God's desire for our role in the Great Commission. We know that God does the work that needs to bring, that is needed to bring people to Himself. Though He desires to use anyone willing to be used as a part of evangelism, our part in that, our role isn't to force anyone into belief. Belief is God's work through the Holy Spirit. God brings about the growth and the change in someone's life. What I love also about the descriptions of each of these differences between converts and disciples is that they're characteristics. All of the characteristics of a disciple describe inward changes which lead to following Jesus more closely, while the characteristics of converts are actions that may not go any deeper than just outward appearance. What I also appreciate about these characteristics is that they are building upon each other. When each one of us came to faith in Jesus Christ, we changed our master, who we follow. If our master had simply been ourselves, we went from being self-centered to following Jesus as our master as opposed to the convert who simply changes religions, a disciple's daily life changes from the inside out. God's desire for each of us is that he wants to lead us by his spirit, moment by moment, in our daily lives. 
That's what it means for Jesus to be truly master of our lives. And here's what I want to focus on the most from that list. Converts follow a system. Disciples follow a person, Jesus Christ. When we first came to faith in Jesus, a lot of us were told to follow the system that was set before us, which was read your Bible, pray, go to church, and be with other Christians. Now, all of those activities were supposed to point us to Jesus. Now, are those things wrong? Well, of course not. They are good and they are important things to do, but only because they draw us into a closer relationship with God, not because there's some kind of magic in a checklist. Following a system isn't what God wants for our lives. God doesn't want us checking boxes on a list and thinking that will make us a disciple of Jesus. Remember, the Pharisees focused their lives on following the system, and we know how much Jesus called them out for doing so. But this message is not so much about the importance of being a disciple as much as it is about how to disciple, how to make disciples. So we'll need to define what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower or a student of a teacher or a leader. In this case, we're talking about a follower of Jesus Christ. To truly follow Christ means that he has become something to us. Everyone follows something. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's culture. Maybe it's family or selfish desires. Or maybe it's God. And we can only follow one thing at a time. Matthew 6.24 tells us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that's true of more than just money. To truly follow Christ means that we do not follow anything else. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. There is no such thing as a halfway disciple. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here that I had not originally thought of taking because I think many times you hear the phrase, take up your cross daily and follow me, and you're not exactly sure what that means. So let me just take a minute to explain that. What does it mean to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus? Well, when a person carried a cross in Jesus' day, it meant one thing and one thing only, death by crucifixion. To carry a cross was to face the most painful and humiliating means of death. The question is, are you ready to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Well, consider these questions. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your closest friends? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means alienation from your family? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your reputation? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your job? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your life? In some places of the world, these consequences are a daily reality. But notice the phrasing of the questions. Are you willing Following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that all of those things are going to happen to you, but the disciple of Christ must be willing to suffer loss. Are you willing to take up your cross? If faced with a choice, Jesus or the comforts of this life, which will you choose?
And now we also need to answer the question, what and or who is a disciple? Peter, James, and John, and those other guys who followed Jesus back in the day? Uh, is it, was it the Apostle Paul? Is he a disciple? Is it your pastors? Well, the answer is yes, yes, and yes, and you. There is a passage in the Bible that isn't looked at a whole lot, but it does have quite a bit to say about discipleship. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And I encourage you to take your Bibles and look that up. That's Titus chapter 2. And uh, if you've got your, your phone with an app on it, or maybe you brought an iPad, that's great. If you brought your Bible, that's good. If you didn't bring any of those things, there's a Bible right in front of you. And you get the easy hint. It's on page 938. Now, those of you who are reading from an e-version of the Bible, you have an advantage, right? It's easy to look up Titus, even if you don't know where it is. Because I'm watching those of you with your paper Bibles that are trying to find Titus, and you're going back and forth. Wait, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Titus. No, 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 that's not it. It's the, the Corinthian leather epistles and then First and Second Titus. No, 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 wait. First Titus follows Second Thessalonians. And then you give up and you go to the table of contents, right? And that's where you see it. Titus, Philemon. Yeah, yeah. I, okay, I remember now the pastoral epistles. Yes, yes. And now dust is flying up from your Bibles where Titus and Philemon are, right? Those poor guys. It's like being Rob Kardashian. Everybody forgets that the Kardashian sisters have a little brother. Well, anyway, let's go to Titus chapter 2. We're going to read the first eight verses. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now, I'm going to make a statement that may shock you. You are being watched. That sounds kind of creepy, but I don't mean that in a stalker kind of a way. You're being watched by someone or maybe a multiple amount of people who are younger and less mature in their faith walk than you. They're watching you because they admire your faith and they want to learn how you do it. But they're afraid to ask, so they just watch. Now, you may think that the only ones being watched are the grizzled, silver-haired Christians who put their faith and trust in Christ shortly after they took their first baby steps. And then they were baptized at the age of four with a Billy Graham kind of testimony. And they have walked side by side with Jesus for the last 75 years, never wavering in their faith, never entertaining a doubt, and singing Amazing Grace in three languages simultaneously, all the while leading a biker gang to Christ. Now, none of that is true, right? You are also being watched by someone who is wondering if Christianity 
is really everything that you say it is. Because they want to know how the world really works and whether we actually believe everything that we say about good and bad and right and wrong. Your behavior either confirms their suspicion that Christianity is merely a farce or it invites them to come nearer for a closer look. You are not just being watched by those who are not yet following Jesus, but also by those who are very close to crossing from this life into glory, the older believers, because they are hoping and praying that the coming generation will faithfully carry on what they have built, just as the generation before them did the same. You're also being watched by younger believers who need reassurance that the path that they have chosen to follow is the right one. So yes, we are all being watched. In the time that Jesus was on earth and discipling men and women, discipleship looked a lot different than we picture it today. In our current uh, Western era, uh, in contrast to our current Western era, learning in Jesus' time was very relational and it was holistic. Discipleship meant much more than just the transfer of information. It referred to imitating the teacher's life and living his values and reproducing his teachings. So Christian discipleship, it implies there is a relationship with a teacher. And that teacher is really just someone who is a bit further down the road in their spiritual journey. And then following them and adhering to their way of life. Because their teaching shapes your own worldview. Jesus' expectation for his followers was clear, to become more and more like him. The very word Christian means little Christ. In other words, we want to become the mirror image of our Savior. Jesus did that with the original disciples by living life with them. They not only heard his words, they also watched how he lived his life, even the stressful parts. But when Jesus returned to heaven, he left that responsibility with you and I, with his followers. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, the apostle Paul tells people, the people that he was discipling, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's not just for Paul. That's for every one of us. Okay, so I think we all understand that we need to be discipled. And that if we're going to be discipled, that somebody needs to be the disciple maker. So let's get more specific about both sides of this relationship. In Titus, the Apostle Paul issues a challenge to a church leader on the island of Crete. And Paul argues that Christians must match their lifestyle to their doctrine. In other words, how you live must equal what you believe. A disciple-maker needs correct beliefs, but he or she also needs correct behavior that matches those beliefs. Paul offers instructions to four groups, and we're going to focus on the first three. Each group has a role. Significantly, Paul begins with the senior members of that congregation. Now, what did Paul mean when he said old? Philo, one of the world's leading philosophers, who was an older man when Paul was a younger man, said that old meant over 60. Hippocrates, a Greek physician who lived about 400 years before Jesus was born, said that old was 50 to 60, the sixth of seven periods in a person's life. 
In other words, Paul is addressing those people in our culture that we would classify as senior citizens. Now, that's astounding because it shatters a very prevalent myth that is in our culture that I'm too old to contribute or I'm old enough that I don't need to contribute anymore. If you suggested that to the Apostle Paul, he would have said nonsense. Paul singles out older people as the people to whom Titus was to focus his time and his energy. God has a role for older Christians. You may not feel like it, but God has a role for you as a senior Christian. The question remains, when you hit your retirement years and you can't put in as many hours in a day as you used to, what does God want you to do? In this passage, Paul indicates that your role as a senior Christian is as much to become as to do. Paul gives Titus the responsibility of telling the men what kind of men they need to become. Now, as I read that passage, right away there's a problem. Because our senior Christians grew up with the only version that was really readily available to them was the King James Version. And in that version, the first two qualities listed in the verse are listed as sober and grave. Now, I don't know what those words suggest to you, but to me, they suggest stern and grouchy. Now, someone that might be someone who doesn't smile or who frowns on fun. It reminds me of that old man in Pixar's Up, Carl Fredrickson. Those qualities also remind me of the man who was the facilities director at the church where I grew up. I was convinced that this man's spiritual gift was grumpiness. He didn't want us kids to run on the grass at church. He didn't want us to run through the flower beds, even though there were some great paths that went through them. He didn't want us to run inside the church. Basically, he didn't want us to run. That was commandment number 11, thou shalt not run at church. Now, I have a confession to make, and it goes way beyond running at church. When the new youth pastor was hired, my high school Sunday school teacher invited all of the guys in his class to come over and spend the night at his house. And late at night, when everybody else at the church had gone home, we took stacks of old newspapers and wadded them up and filled the youth pastor's office with these crumpled up newspapers from the front door to the back wall, from the floor to the ceiling. We found out later that Mr. Grumpy was really mad because the newsprint got all over the walls and he had to repaint the whole office. It's probably a good thing that Mr. Grumpy never found out exactly who played that prank. Now, that kind of disposition also makes me think of that famous painting, American Gothic. You know the one that I'm talking about. It depicts a skinny man with weathered skin, and he's wearing those round, wire-rimmed glasses standing next to his dour wife. And he's wearing the bib overalls, and he's holding the pitchfork, and his wife is looking off in the distance. Yeah, you know the one I'm talking about. Is that what God is calling you to become? I sure hope not. Sober is translated as temperance in the message paraphrase. That word is often associated with moderation in the use of alcohol, but here it's used in a much more general sense, not just about alcohol. It indicates a lifestyle that is not excessive or rash. Old age tends to, to magnify our character qualities. 
our habits and ways of responding become more pronounced. If we tend to get angry as a younger person, old age makes us grouchy. If we tend to be shy as a younger person, old age can make us reclusive. If we tend to have strong opinions as a younger person, old age can make us excessively opinionated. I firmly believe that grumpy old men were once grumpy young men, but their filter is now gone. Being sober means that we are balanced in our personality and our personal habits. We avoid extremes in our moods and words and behavior. Likewise, the term grave doesn't mean that you can't crack a smile, and it doesn't mean that you have to be formal and stiff. Grave shows up in the newer translations as dignified or worthy of respect. It might mean having a great sense of humor along with having a seriousness about your life. We need more people who take life and God seriously, but don't take themselves that seriously. The next term in my Bible is self-controlled. This refers to the man who keeps his passions under control, and the word literally means safe-minded. It means that you think clearly enough to control your passions. I don't think it's an accident that many Bible characters failed in the second half of their life. You remember Noah got drunk. David had an affair. Solomon flirted with all kinds of false ideas. Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe wrote, As we grow older, we're confronted with temptations that we've shunned in youth, but that now look very attractive. Cutting corners, eliminating disciplines, lowering standards. Paul says, Titus, tell the older men in your congregation that they are to maintain control over their lives. Then finally, older men are to remain sound. This word means in good health or in good shape. They're to do it in three critical areas of the Christian life, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Paul now turns to the older women. Notice the word likewise in verse 3. That conjunction suggests that what the older women are to become resembles what the older men were to become. First, older women are to be reverent in behavior, and that term literally means fit for the temple. In other words, older women need to live like people whose lives are devoted to religious duties. Now next, Paul cites two negative qualities that women must avoid. They are not to be slanderers or slaves to wine. From what we know, life on Crete was very difficult. And back in the first chapter of Titus, in verse 12, Paul cited a statement that was made by Epimedes. And I'm so proud of myself for saying that. I practiced it all week. He was to the Cretans what Abraham Lincoln would be to us. And that man said, The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. In that environment, some of the women on the island became bitter and withdrew. Instead of facing problems, they escaped through the abuse of alcohol. And instead of participating, they stood on the outside and created havoc with their gossip. In contrast to this, the end of of the verse says that their role is actually to teach what is good. Then in verse 4, we come to a purpose statement. That word is so. 
The word that Paul uses signals a purpose and could be translated in order that. Women are to behave in these ways in order that they can train the the young women. They are to learn from you how to love their husbands and their children. Now, younger wives and mothers of children, I don't have to tell you that life can be hard sometimes. Maybe sometimes it feels like it's hard all of the time. You need the example and maybe the advice of someone who has been there and done that. Older women are also to train the younger women how to live in a way that honors God even when your human nature is screaming to assert your own rights. This statement recognizes that the most important job and the most important ministry of a wife and mother is her family. It doesn't mean that a woman can't work outside the home, but it should not come at the expense of her family. Study the profile of the virtuous woman described in Proverbs 31, and you'll find that her home was the base of her operations and the goal of her operations. Furthermore, the older women are to train the younger women to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. That is, they are to model how to respond to their husband's leadership in the home. And then the desired result that we're told at the end of verse 5 is that the word of God will not be dishonored or shamed. So let's try to understand the big picture here. Older women are to live a lifestyle that enables them to train and encourage younger women. Older Christians are also to model what the next generation is to become. Paul emphasizes the role of women in teaching the upcoming generation of younger women more than he tells the older men to do that. Now, why is that? Because he did so because Titus, perhaps a pastor there, it's certainly a leader in the church, as a man was supposed to work more closely with the men. It wouldn't be appropriate for him to be spending that much time working with the younger women. That was the role of the older women. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul instructs another leader, Timothy, to entrust what he had been taught to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. God calls older Christians to pursue the kind of behavior that matches correct doctrine. As they do this, older Christians display the kind of lifestyle younger Christians need to pursue. The role of older Christians is to model what God wants the next generation to become. Discipleship is not a program. It is about modeling the Christian life. Now, I imagine some of you are thinking, I'm really not sure I'm qualified to fulfill this role. Or, I'm not sure I'm the kind of Christ follower a younger Christian ought to imitate. Now, before you give up, this text suggests a requirement that will enable you to carry out your role of modeling what God wants the next generation to become. He is telling older Christians that they must continue to learn. In verse 1, Paul tells Titus, "...you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine." So the first people that Titus must teach are the older people. To assume the role of modeling what God wants the next generation to become, older Christians must continue to learn. What Paul says to Titus shatters the myth that people become too old to learn or too old to change. In his instruction to Titus, Paul assumes that older people can continue to learn. Friends, as soon as you quit learning, you will quit making an impact and you will quit living a productive life. 
I read uh, something I'm going to share with you from the Daily Bread. This is from a long time ago. But it says, old age is dreaded by almost everyone because it usually means loneliness, physical decline, and a retreat to inactivity. Some people tend to lose their enthusiasm for life and spend too much time in fruitless reminiscing and self-pity. They feel like old Jimmy, an elderly gentleman that the great George Mueller often talked about. When old Jimmy was asked what he did all day since he had retired, he replied, I just sit and think and sit and think, and sometimes I just sit. That's getting old in the worst way, ceasing to live before you actually physically die. History records that many people made some of their greatest contributions to society after the age of 65. The Earl of Halsburg, for example, was 90 when he began preparing a 20-volume revision of English law. That's ambitious. Goethe wrote the great play Faust when he was 82. Galileo made his greatest discovery when he was 73. At 69, Hudson Taylor was still vigorously working on the mission field, opening up new territories in Indochina. And when Caleb was 85, he took the stronghold of the giants. God never intends for us to retire from spiritual activity. The Bible says we can still bring forth fruit in old age. That's from Psalm 92. Even as Jesus kept the best wine for the last at the wedding in Cana, he also seeks to gather the best clusters of the fruit of the Spirit from the fully ripened harvest of our lives. You may be sure God won't keep you on this earth if he didn't have a worthwhile ministry for you to accomplish. So keep on serving the Lord. Isn't that a great devotion from our daily bread? Be sure that God wouldn't keep you on this earth if he didn't have a worthwhile ministry for you to accomplish. Well, I've been talking to older folks, but I want to say a word or two to younger people. Don't forget that the older people are the future of our church. Now, if that sounds odd, remember what I've been teaching you this morning, that God uses older people to help younger people reach their full potential in Christlikeness. We need to look to their example, and we need to seek their wisdom. In other words, young people need to do three things. First, get to know the older person in, in our congregation. Take time to visit with them before you leave church on Sunday. Ask them questions. Tell them about your struggles in life and see if they have something relevant to share with you. You might be surprised that they have experienced something similar in their own life. Second, encourage and affirm the older Christians. Some of them may be lonely. Some may feel like they don't have much to contribute. Let them know how important they are and let them know that you need them. Third, Realize that you are going to get old yourself someday. Determine that Titus chapter 2 describes the older woman or man that you want to become. As for our seniors, I want you to know that I marvel at what you have to put up with because life has changed drastically in your lifetime. Even church life is different. I want you to know that you are important to the future of this church. God is not done with you, and neither are we. You may not have the stamina you used to have, but we still need you. This is where the grandparent factor kicks in. 
Have you ever noticed how sometimes people will listen to their grandparents quicker than they will to their parents? I think that happens in our church family as well. You may be the difference in some younger Christian's life because they see in you what God wants them to become. Now, just so that you don't think that all discipling is supposed to be done by people who collect Social Security, discipling is for everyone. You may remember that earlier I said that the person who is doing the discipling just needs to be a little bit further down the road in their spiritual life than the person that they are discipling. So there's no reason that a 30-year-old woman can't be discipling a 17-year-old girl or a 40-year-old man discipling a 23-year-old guy. And don't get caught up in the physical age. This is more about spiritual maturity. Now, that being said, there is something to be said for having lived longer and having experienced more of life. Let me take some time this morning to dispel a prevalent but erroneous presumption. The presumption says that if I can get my disciple to complete a course of material, he will be discipled. Because I'm thinking, many of you are thinking, okay, Pastor Scott, show me what I'm supposed to take them through. Let me share with you a story told by a former world-class decathlete who is now a world-class teacher on the subject of discipleship. His name is Chris Adsett. He says, back in 1977, when I was competing for the Athletes in Action track team, that's a ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ then, it's now called CREW, We were one of the few post-college teams with enough finances to provide transportation and equipment for our athletes. Now, remember, this is almost 50 years ago. So, yes, you could go from uh, being a college basketball star to perhaps uh, getting paid to play in the NBA. The same for football, the same for baseball. But that wasn't true for track and field. For this reason, many athletes wanted to join us, both Christians and non-Christians. But since our purpose as a team was to introduce others to Christ through our witness, we felt strongly about maintaining a high degree of spiritual integrity among our athletes. So we decided to require all prospective team members to complete a series of Bible study booklets before we would officially accept them. I tell you, we were excited about all of these national and international caliber athletes completing the studies and joining the team. National champions, Olympic gold medalists, world record holders. We were getting quite proud of the impact we were having on the track world, discipling, he says in quotes, all these influential athletes. There was only one problem. They were going through the material, but the material was going through most of them like water through a sieve. For a while, we allowed these athletes to join our team and represent Jesus Christ to the athletic world simply on the basis of some completed material and a personal interview. But we quickly changed our ways when we learned that many of these so-called ambassadors were living lives that were in no way pleasing to Christ. Just because someone reads an article, looks up some Bible verses, and writes answers to some questions, that doesn't necessarily mean he's gaining any spiritual maturity. The growing process involves the disciple learning it, which is gaining the information, loving it, which is gaining the conviction, and living it, which is manifesting the information and the conviction in your lifestyle. As disciple-makers, we have to pursue that process 
not the material completion process. Now, this week in preparing the message, I reread chapter 13 of his book, which is called Personal Disciple Making. It is available on Amazon and even in Kindle format if you'd like to read it. And if you're trying to remember that or write it down, there are half sheets of paper back at the hub that's just a a copy of the front of the book, and you'll be able to look it up from that. In recent weeks, I've encouraged you to share your faith and today to disciple someone. I hope that this is not confined to head knowledge. I really hope that you're stepping out in faith, asking God to open your eyes to someone who needs to hear the good news, who needs to be discipled, studying your Bible so that you understand what you're sharing and know how to live, and that you're taking a step of faith, yes, it's scary faith, and opening your mouth. Ask God to help you see that without Jesus, People will spend eternity separated from everything good, separated from God, and spend an eternity in torment because they are completely separated from God and everything that is good. And I hope that you are living your life in a way that you are a model of Christ-likeness to those who are younger in their faith. Unless you see it that way, you will only think that you are making someone's life on earth a little better and a little more tolerable and possibly just making you feel a little bit better about yourself. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example of Paul and Titus. We thank you that you uh, have given us a part to play in this. And it starts with us living our lives in a way that uh, allows people to follow our example because we are following Christ. Give us the courage to ask somebody a little bit further along in their spiritual life to be our mentor, to be our disciple maker. And Father, also give us the eyes to see somebody who might need that in their lives and to do so. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.